Matthew 10 is a, uh, a life-altering chapter in the Bible because what's happened in Matthew 10 is Jesus is saying to his disciples, and we're going to be looking at verse 16 and a little bit of, uh, of, of chapter 11. Jesus is saying to his disciples, what we've been doing for thousands of years has not worked. So we're going to change. For thousands of years, Israel has trusted in its genetic makeup. Israel has trusted in the might of its arms, its military. Israel has trusted in the uh, uh, power of its government and the influence of its government and the riches it has in its temple and the way that their Jewish faith has been defined and led and Jesus has said, it's not working. It's not working. It represents the kingdom of earth, but it doesn't represent the kingdom of God. And so Jesus pushes a reset button in Matthew 16, in Matthew 10, 16, and it is one of the most ridiculous statements a religious leader has ever made when he looks at his disciples He's going to send out the 12, and then he's going to send out the 72, and then uh, there's going to be an army of God appear uh, after the resurrection, Acts 2 and Acts chapter 4, and he's saying the same thing to us this morning. I am sending you out, not by the might of your army, not by the influence of your government, not by the wealth of your economy, I'm going to send you out as sheep among wolves. Well, howdy. Who in the world does that? Uh, I'm, a, I'm a country boy. You, you don't have to tell me uh, how many um, battles sheep in with wolves. And if, if that's not enough, and I'm paraphrasing, phrasing, Jesus said to his disciples, and, and not only that, I'm, I'm going to let you be arrested. I'm going to allow them to rescue, rest, arrest you because I, I'm not a 13-year-old teenager. My voice is breaking. I just talk too much. And, um, but what Jesus says uh, uh, to them, there, there are places, and you know this. It's true for everyone sitting here, I would imagine. It, if you wanted to, you cannot just pick up the phone or get on your text or your email or your social media and write the president or write the governor or write the, the, the leaders of the military and say to them, uh, I, I would like to have a meal with you. I would like to have tea with you or share a Coke with you and, and give you my opinion on things. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, you do not have access to the highest levels of, of secular life and sacred life. So what I'm going to do, I've got a plan for you. I'm going to let you be arrested. Do you realize this morning how little we agree with Jesus? I'm going to let you be arrested. And they're going to do really bad things to you. They're going to beat you. They're going to torture you. They're going to persecute you. And Jesus said, in the word of God, 
you go, I'm sending you as a witness to them through the vehicle of persecution. Sheep among wolves. And what the church wants to do is become super sheep on steroids so we can hold our place among the wolves rather than give our lives for them. Loving them into the kingdom of God. And, and you think, if Jesus was going to change the way we act as his followers in history, uh, a, a 180, did he give us time uh, to get adjusted to it? But in Matthew chapter 11, he doesn't. He lets his best friend, his pastor, be arrested because he told Herod, you will not take your brother's wife into your bedroom and have knowledge of you of, of her. You might think you have God-like qualities, but I'm telling you the God, the God will judge you for your actions. And so Herod, with a, a couple of conniving ladies, has John in prison and his head is about to be removed from his shoulders. Jesus' pastor baptized him heard the voice of God, said, I'm not worthy to unlace his sandals, saw him coming and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth. And now John is about to die. And Ruth and I have sat with believers in persecution in over 72 countries, almost 650 of them. We've watched believers in Somalia be hunted down and killed from 150 to four. And they killed four of my best friends on one day in a 45-minute period. Uh, no one has to talk uh, to me what it means to be sheep among wolves. And the wolves don't wait for you to come. They come looking for you. And, and Jesus, his, his pastor, his, his friend, the one who prepared the way, is, is in prison and is, he's about to be killed. And he, and he says what believers in persecution in the same situation will say a thousand times plus today, uh, Jesus, are you the Messiah or have I believed a fairy tale? What they want to know is if they're dying for the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings or the something less something less than who can provide eternal life. And as a brand new believer at 18 years of age, when I read this account in Matthew 11, I lost all faith in John the Baptist. In the way that I grew up, John the Baptist wussed out. He, 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 he let Jesus down, he let me down. I thought John the Baptist was square shoulders, and puff out his chest and said, I'm going to die the way I've lived. You bring it on. And, 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 and if I leave this body, the next place I'll be is at the foot of the throne of God. But John said, send his disciples to Jesus. Are you the Messiah? Do we wait for someone else? And if John's question was heartbreaking, then Jesus' answer was different than I would ever think. If somebody comes up to you today, 
this week identifies you as someone who loves God, uh, participates in the life of this body, and they ask you, uh, tell me, prove to me that Jesus is the Messiah, what are you going to say? What, what, what explanation are you going to give? Jesus didn't do that. He said, you go back and you tell John what you see and what you hear. That in the marketplace of life, the blind see, the deaf hear, the lepers are being cleansed, the lame are walking, uh, uh, the dead are being raised, and, and the gospel is being shared, is being proclaimed to the poorest of the poor of the outcast. And what Jesus said to John, I prove my Messiahship by what God and his people, what Jesus and his people are doing six days a week that you can come in here and celebrate on one day of the week. The Messiahship of Jesus is proven what we do with Jesus out there, not by what we do in here. So the little journey I want to take you on is what is Jesus doing out there in places maybe not as well known uh, to you. Uh, Ruth and I have worked with Muslims since 1991, and you may be horrified to hear depending on your political point of view, or you may be ecstatic to hear that the only place where Muslims are not coming to Christ by the tens of thousands are the places we don't go. Now, that's not missionary speak. I'm not giving a report to the International Mission Board so I can get a better job. Now, you don't get more pay, you just get a better job. Now, what... what the only place where Muslims aren't coming to Christ by the tens of thousands are the places we don't go. You see, Muslims live in the fear of the 1%. In fear of the 1%. When they stand before God and they have one good deed over their bad deeds, they go to the paradise. If they have one bad deed, over the good deeds, they go to the hell. And they're on a journey to find God, and they can't find him. And the more that they can't find him, the more angry and the violent they get because they're living in abject fear of that 1%. When you have the 100%. Hear the words of the Lord. I met a young former Muslim lady in Taliban-held territory, and she dreamed. See, Muslims have three things that are common in 93% of their conversions. And number one, the way that Muslims interact with the supernatural is by dreams and visions. You won't find a PhD in America that doesn't regularly have these. What is miraculous is not the dreams and visions. What is miraculous is that God breaks in and changes the content. And they hear, quote, a voice without a body in the jungles of Indonesia, hear, hear a voice without a body saying, find Jesus, find the good news. That's pretty clear. But he didn't know what a Jesus was, he told me. Is it a rock, a tree, 
a chair. What's a Jesus? And the Holy Spirit says, get up out of your bed midnight, walk over the mountain to the coast, walk up the coast to a city you've never been. When you get there at daylight, the first guys, two men you meet, ask them where a certain street was. He'd never been on a street before. He'd been in the jungle. And they showed him the street. His vision showed him numbers that he'd look for for a door. He knocked on the door, and an older man, early in the morning when you don't visit, opens the door, looks at a young Muslim man, said, can I help you? Young man just says innocently, I've come to find Jesus, find the gospel. And a hand shot out, pulled him inside the door. The door was slammed, and the older man said, you Muslims must think I'm a fool to follow for something as transparent as this. And the young man said, sir, I don't know whether you're a fool or not. I just met you. You know, that's pretty uh, clear. And God, out of 17 million Muslim people, we knew of three believers at that time. And the Holy Spirit led him over the mountain up the coast to one of those believers. Now, who doesn't want to be part of things like that that God is doing? And that old man kept that young man for two weeks, led him to Christ, sent him back to his village, a changed man. His wife had a, a, a changed husband. His kids had a changed fathers. His crops began to grow and his animals began to re, reproduce and his, his, his neighbors began to see their lives and want what they have and they wanted the Jesus. But guess what? They also wanted. They wanted good crops and they wanted animals that reproduce. The quicker you get to Jesus plus issues, the quicker you turn away from Jesus. Oh, we can investigate that for a long time. But I met this young Muslim lady by the time I'd caught up with her because no one told her to do anything different. She had led 30 other Muslim women to Christ. And the Taliban had three fatwas, death threats against her. One, because she converted, in their words. Two, she was converting others. And three, she was working for the United Nations in the arena of human and civil rights. She spoke five languages, and they were after her because she was having the Taliban men arrested, thrown into jail for what they were doing to women in the refugee camps. This young single woman wasn't five foot four, but you don't want to mess with her. She was, there was no place in our world where we'd ever met anybody like her leading women to Christ and gathering them together. Uh, it just was amazing. The United Nations wanted to resettle her to St. Louis, Missouri because of the death threat I begged her to stay. Okay, well, that's easy for you to do, Ripken. She said, Uncle Nick, you know they're going to beat me. And we looked at all uh, places in the Bible, as many as we could, where that was true. She said, Uncle Nick, you know they might put me in jail. And we talked about those stories. And she said, Uncle Nick, it might cost me my life. I said, what if the uh, salvation of all the women in your part of the world depends upon you staying here and being the witness that God has in this place? And of course, when, when Jesus said, when persecution comes upon you, flee. 
to the next village and the next city and the next town, not to America, not to Europe, not to Christian countries. Uh, Jesus never once told us to flee leaving our families and leaving our people and our towns and our cities uh, without uh, a gospel witness uh, uh, to eternal life. And I'm just going to park her story right there at that point. But I failed to stay, say what started her journey, and it, it's true in almost every literate Muslim interview that we do, which means it's in almost all the men's interview, because in the rural places, 90% of the women cannot read or write a word, and the only way they can interact with the Word of God is for women telling them God's stories. They're not going to hear them from me. I'm not going to have access. I'm not going to be allowed to have a conversation with them. Unless Ruth tells them, they're not going to hear. Wow. And she dreamed of the Bible. Now, listen to me. We've sat with 250 plus Muslims in every Muslim country on earth listening to their stories how they found Jesus. And in every situation where Muslims are literate and they dream of the Bible, it's always astoundingly has a blue cover on it. Why? Why would God put a blue cover on the Bible so that when Muslims dream of that, they are overtly inspired to go look for it. We'd expect it maybe to be green like the Quran, or at least black is what we do because if we put green covers on the Bible and a Muslim picks it up, the rest of the Muslims are very angry thinking we're tricking them into picking up a Bible. We don't have to use trickery. We have the Holy Spirit, right? And, 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 and so I expect it to be green and so after hearing 10 or 15 interviews and hearing a few of them say they dreamed of a blue book, we got to listening to it and we found it was 100%. And we tried for 15 years, Ruth and I, to find out why when Muslims dream of the blue book of the Bible, it has a blue cover on it. And two years ago, we found out why. And it's an astounding insight of the Holy Spirit into the souls of Muslims. If you have me back, I'll tell you why it's a blue book. <laughs> but I'm looking at the clock, all right? And, and so he does three things. He gives them dreams and visions. If they're literate, they're dreaming on the Bible, and they'll go on a pilgrimage that'll last three to five years, and they'll have three 30 to 40 encounters with people like you who'll get a story here, story there, story, 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 until they can put it together and find saving knowledge in Jesus. Why? They're looking for us. They'll go to one, two, and three countries looking for Jesus because we're not looking for them. Not even when God brings them across the street. Not even when he brings them to our neighborhood. And they're, they, they're searching and looking for him. And after three to five years, and they have enough stories, and especially if they see the Jesus film in their language, they marvelously, wonderfully come to Christ and they don't keep him to themselves because they're so family and, and community oriented. What God is doing in, in the marketplace, uh, Ruth and I have gone about three times among low caste Hindus. I don't know of a poor people on earth. Object poverty. At one place of water in their village that they share with the community for everything. 
uh, runoff water that they use for their animals. There is, if you're a medical person, when we left the field for health reasons, <clears throat> there were uh, two million low caste Hindus for every one medical person. That doesn't mean a doctor or nurse. That just means somebody's taking a class. They're sick. And it's amazing to watch these Hindu background believers, young men usually, in their 30s, early 40s, uh, they were former Hindus, now follow Jesus, and they're going from one low caste village to the other, and they're gathering them together and saying, we've come with information about the God. Now, when you have three million gods and six, seven, eight major gods, you're always interested, and the whole adult village will come and sit at their feet, and they'll ask them exactly this, how many of you are sick? And everybody's hand goes up. They, they've got malaria. They've got parasites. They've got eye disease and ear infections. They, they, they've got uh, a skin disease uh, that, that in the Old Testament they would consider it leprosy. They, they've got every disease known uh, to humankind. They can't even afford or have access to an aspirin or clean water. And they're asking them, how many of you are sick? And how many you want to be healed, and every the same amount of hands go up. And just like in Matthew tense, and I'm praying to God, you don't see this as past tense. What do you expect God to do where there's no medical people? God does what he always does. He gives sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf and he cleanses you of your skin disease and your leprosies, and, 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 and he casts out those demons. And, and if you ask low-caste Hindus what their major illness is, they'll say, I'm demon-possessed, I'm demon-possessed. Well, the Bible has an answer to that. Not only how to get rid of them, but what to replace them with. But if you believe that the Bible's an old book, and it's a book about what God used to do, You've hamstrung yourself. You've ex excised your own heart and your own soul. Just live out the Bible and allow the Holy Spirit to be pronounced and let God do what God does. And, and they're saying to them, uh, uh, how many of you are sick? How many of you want to get well? And they're laying hands on them and they're seeing them healed. And, and Ruth and I have been in many places among low-caste Hindus where the baptismal rate uh, uh, exceeds 20,000 a month. That's not missionary speak. That's God speak. Amen. Now, I'm uh, curious enough, and I have enough doubt. So I go back to the villages, and I find people who came to Christ that God got their attention. Listen, dreams and visions don't save anybody. Only Jesus saves. Miracles of healing don't save anybody. Get your attention. But if they lead to Jesus, that's where salvation is found. And I've gone back and met low-caste Hindus who've got deathly ill again, and God chose not to heal them, and they stayed with Jesus. That's a true sign that they didn't see Jesus as only as a healer, but as Lord and Lord and King of kings. What is Jesus doing in the marketplace? When you go uh, to East Asia, 
Most of you can figure out where that is. Your mission pastor served there. Now we're on the same page. And, and, and you can go there. Every house church that we could find prior to 1970 started with miracles of healing. And then as we looked at the great growth <clears throat> of the Chinese house church after that, <clears throat> and Bibles began to get in, and pastors and evangelists were raised up, and, and, and God had many tools. I asked them, well, then what happened to the miracles of healing? They said, oh, they ceased to happen. The Chinese believers were wrong. Maybe prior to 1970, 50 to 75 percent of everybody came to Christ, started with miracles of healing. God was still healing. It just was a smaller, maybe 10 percent of the 100 percent that was coming to Christ because they had <clears throat> more direct avenues that it could go through. Does that make sense to you? Listen, they are so persecuted. 40% of their pastors, leaders, evangelists are in prison at any one time. At any one time. They, they call prison their theological seminary. And at that time they said, we don't really trust young ministers unless they've been to prison. And they said, Dr. Nick, now that you're here, how many degrees would you like to get? I said, I'm good. <laughs> you know, I'm really good. Ruth needs me, and I don't need any more education. And because they've committed 70% of God's stories to memory, they're leading thousands of prisoners to Christ, some of the greatest movements on earth. You know what they do? That those pastors and those evangelists, as they do church, they change the day of the week that the house church meets. They change the house that they meet in. They change the time of the days they meet in because they want to stay one step ahead of the PSB that's searching for them. You know what I, I've watched them do on the border of China and the country uh, to, their, uh, uh, to their east and north? I've watched a family of four talk about things in the kingdom of God quietly. And when they gathered their selves together to sing, they pushed four chairs together so their knees are touching. Nothing like what we've got to be exalted in this morning. And when they sing their praise songs to God, they move their lips and they don't allow any music sound to come out. Because if their singing goes through the paper-thin walls of the apartment or out a window or a door, security police will be there before the night comes and three generations of that family goes to a labor camp from which they'll never come out because they're singing praises to God. I got up one morning in a group of about 150 house church leaders and I've been interviewing for 14 hour days and then from midnight to one or two o'clock teaching through chronologically the stories in the book of Luke. And at that time, it's different now, they had, they had seven Bibles for 150 leaders. Now they had memorized 70% of the stories from Genesis through Acts, but they still just had seven Bibles. And so I got up that morning and they were, I could tell, it looked like they were just tearing some books apart and to my shock, as I watched, they were tearing the pages out of the Bible. And my interpreter saw 
the horror on my face. He came over and said, Nick, just settle down. It's not what you think. They were so impressed about being able to walk through uh, uh, the entire, all the stories of the book of Luke that they vowed unto God that every leader there, man and woman there, got to go home with at least one book of the Bible. So they'd ask this leader, have you taught the book of Matthew? And if he said no, they ripped it out and gave it to him. They asked him, this one, have you taught Genesis? He said, yeah, but I haven't had it. They tear it out and give it to him. They asked this lady, have you sung the hymn book of the Psalms to the, the churches that you're involved with? And she said no, and they took a long time tearing the Psalms out to give it to her and go home with it. I felt so sorry for the guy that got first John. <laughs> Can you imagine, Pastor, that if you got, uh, 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 you know, a couple of the Gospels and, and, and Todd got uh, Philemon, you know, you're not going to let him stick around very long with just Philemon. And I just, I, I watched them do these things and I watched them sing like this and, and I watched them tear their Bibles so that they could each share it with someone else and, and so that the kingdom of God uh, could spread. And, and then uh, I'm, I'm so overwhelmed with what God is doing among us. And then they asked me about you. And I told them about this. And I told them about what goes on around this worship service and about life that you do together in, in bodies like this. And they began to sob when I thought they would clap and have joy. And I said, what did I, what did I say? They said, you don't understand? I said, no, I, I don't. They said, you, you don't see what you've been telling us? I said, I, I, I don't know what I've done wrong. My wife's not here to tell me. They said, Dr. Nick, which is the greatest miracle? That our pastors move from house to house and place to place, changing dates, days, times, and you say that the man of God, if you all would allow it, could stand here and preach here or outside of here 24 hours a day, and nobody's going to be beaten. He's not going to lose his wife. He's not going to lose his children. He's not going to lose his job. He's not going to be put in prison. He's not going to be killed. Uh, are you telling us that? Which is the greatest miracle, son? You've, you've listened to how we depend on miracles of healing from God just to have medical care. And you tell us that whenever you need a surgery, you can call a Baptist deacon in in Jacksonville, Florida, and fly in America and worship with him on Sunday, see him on Monday, he'll operate with you on you on Wednesday and send you back out to the mission field a few weeks after that. And that you can go even to Christian care 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We want to know, Ripken, which is the greatest miracle. And you've watched us tear our Bibles into shred so that everybody goes home without at least one book. And you tell us that in Ethiopia, where you live now, you have seven different translations of the Bible on the shelf by your desk just for your own use. Ripken, would you like to tell us which is the greatest miracle? And I wept. Because what have I called this? 
this from rural Kentucky. I, I thought this was normal. I, I thought this was common. I thought this is what I deserved. And yet when we describe this to believers in persecution, they weep with brokenness because they don't. They said to me, Ripken, why does God love his children in America so much more than he loves his children in East Asia or Afghanistan or Pakistan or wherever? I call this normal, common, what I deserve. And what believers in person gave me back is the miracle that is this, this morning. 95% of the believers in persecution, if you were to describe this to them, they would think they'd already died and gone to heaven. To be able, this, this is not, don't you go quiet on me. This is not to make you feel guilty. This is to make you to say, hallelujah, praise God. Look what he has done in my midst. I begged her to stay. They sent her to St. Louis before I got home to my wife and kids. And she gave us a way of contacting her, or I gave her some information. And she contacted us, and Ruth bought her a ticket and brought her uh, to Georgetown, Kentucky, where we were living on the edge of a Baptist campus where Ruth and I met, a little college. And we brought her there, and she spent a week on that campus. Well, that campus will never be the same. And we took her to church for the first time, Pastor. We took her to the church for the first time. And she sat back over here. Now, what we did, we took her on Saturday because she'd never been in an audience. She'd never been in a room where men and women mixed and sat together. Husbands and wife, let alone single people. And so we try to describe what it's going to be like and she'd never experienced before. And we're sitting back over here. She's sitting between Ruth and I and the service started with a baptism of a husband, a wife, two teenage girls, and a 12-year-old boy. And, and this young lady from Taliban, had, she started fidgeting, and I thought she was having a panic attack because of the mixed audience and how men and women were touching and everything. And I whispered to her, it's okay, sister. If you need to go out, just uh, you and Ruth slip out, and I'll come when the service ended. And she said in a big stage, stage whisper, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. You're telling me a whole family is being baptized in public and they're not going to kill him. They're not going to make his wife and daughters force them to marry some old man in the mosque and, and send him, send them out into a house where they'll never get out of. And they're not going to send that boy to the most conservative Muslim uncle that, that well, he'll never escape the village. You're, you're telling me that nobody's going to be killed. Nobody's going to be forced into marriage. Nobody's going to be beaten. Nobody's going to be tortured. No one's going to go to jail. You're telling me, she said, there can't be such a miracle on this planet. And she said, why is everyone just sitting here? She said, I think I'm going to stand up and shout. I said, stand up and shout, girl. If they kick you out, Ruth will go with you. 
it'd be unseemly if I left. And, and, and she said, why is everybody just sitting here? Do they not see the overt miracle of God that's taking place in their midst that could not even be dreamed of in anywhere in the Muslim world? She said, why are they sitting here? You know why God sent us here this morning? To plead with you to claim your miracle. To claim that this is not by accident. This is not common. This is not normal. This is not what you deserve. You see, what we can say to you this morning is that the altar of God is open. We can't say that to 70% of the world because it'd be a lie. But it's not that this is the altar of God. The altar of God is anywhere you are that you say a good word for the kingdom of God and you mention Jesus' name in the context of eternity. You've created an altar in your home, in your community, uh, over a meal, at work, at school. You've created an altar to where someone else can meet the love the, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, you can meet the love of Jesus that you never dreamed was possible. And that your life that was going there is now going there. Oh, church, this is not common. And this is not normal. And this is not what we deserve. But this is what God has given us for this time in history. And I'm pleading with you, don't let it go to waste. Create the altar of God for yourself and then export it to your family, your friends, and your colleagues. And do it in the name of Jesus the Christ. As our musicians come to close us out, I'd like to pray over you. Lord Jesus, Thank you for good and godly people. Thank you for shepherds that can walk in our midst without fearing being arrested by the wolves. But Father, again, we know that your children face persecution on a daily basis because they won't keep Jesus to themselves. They're not persecuted because they have a prayer meeting or because they go to a church meeting building they are they are suffering they are in prison and in cases today they will die because they're sharing the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and they believe that love love the love of God will defeat the sin in people's house hearts and will even overcome death oh we praise you for the miracle of gathering together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.